Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. My name is Roy Bensvi, and I'm your host. And this week on the podcast, we have Andrew Sykes. Andrew is a founder and CEO of Habits at Work, a training company based in Chicago that arms revenue-responsible teams with conversation skills and high-impact habits so they can sell more, faster, and keep customers happy longer. Uh, I read that right off the website, so that's as accurate as it can get. Andrew is, as he puts it in his Google talk of how to be a magnetic person, is a magnetic person. He's just super positive, great listener, great talker, super fun, conversational person, and I had a blast on this podcast. He really embodies what he teaches. and. Essentially, what he wants you to do is create better habits in order to make yourself a better person. And he said something in this podcast that really gave me pause. And I never thought about it that way. But what he said was, we basically invent the person we become. And that's very, very true. Uh, Throughout your life, you make many, 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 many choices. And eventually, hopefully, if you do those consciously, you can get to where you want to be as a human. Unfortunately, a lot of the choices we make are unconscious choices, and they lead to us becoming not the person we necessarily want to be. And he has a whole book about how you, what you do, what kind of habits, things to practice every day. And he believes that if you practice these habits religiously, you can become the top 1% of, of whatever industry, of whatever thing that you are trying to get into. So as you can imagine, it was a fascinating conversation. He is just super charismatic character. And I had a lot of fun. He's very open to conversation. And again, like I think one of the most important things is, and we touched on this in this episode is listening. He's a really, really good listener. He doesn't try to interject. Almost seems like he mastered the craft of a good conversation. So he has a lot of great insights. He's been doing this for many, many years. He's worked with some of the biggest companies in the world from Shell to McDonald's to many other large companies. So he definitely knows what he's talking about. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this uh, episode. As always, if you can subscribe, rate, review, you know, share, tell people about the podcast. We wanted to get, we want the podcast to to get to as many people as possible. So I really appreciate any support. It really helps the podcast grow. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize the amount of work that goes into creating a podcast, and I want to keep growing it. So we need the support of you guys. So. Whatever you can do, it really helps. And without further ado, here is this week's guest, Andrew Sykes. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Andrew Sykes, how are you, man? Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast today. Yeah, man, it's a pleasure. I love people with amazing attitudes and uh, magnetic personality, and uh, I think you are the uh, you are the guy to talk to. Well, I'm hoping so. It's a it's a fun opportunity, especially in these times, to talk about what might be possible for us as human beings and for us as a society. So, 
let's uh, have that conversation. <laughs> um, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I've, I've watched your stuff, and I like that. I, 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 when I finished the, you know, I think the last one I heard was the Google uh, uh, talk you had, and you f- you leave feeling better than when you started. And that's what I like, you know, it's like on top of the insights and, 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 the, and, the, and the pearls of wisdom that, you know, if you really listen to, you can extract from it. You just overall, you're like, I feel better. And I really like that. And you don't get that with every talk that, that you hear, you know, over the internet. Well, that's very kind of you to say and wonderful to hear. It reminds me of my favorite quote by Maya Angelou. She said, people will forget what you said and they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Yeah. I wish I could be more conscious of that in my life, you know, thinking about what do you leave behind when you leave a room and are people saying they're impressed with you or are they saying they're inspired by you? Yeah. I feel like that's uh, that's something I struggle with at times, um, especially with meeting new people. I tend to go home sometimes. I'm like, did I make a good impression? I, and not that I, not in the sense that I really care. I'm not someone who really cares what people think about. It's more for myself. Like, like, did I do a good job in presenting myself to, to these people? Or did I maybe go back to, to some of the worst traits I had when I was younger? You know, especially if you're drinking a little bit, you tend to go overboard with certain things. So it's always, it's always a balance. Roy, it sounds like we, we have similar personalities. You know, I, I find <laughs> I spend a lot of time in my head and I have one of those faces where if I'm not conscious of it, people think something really bad is wrong and like I have a grumpy face or an angry looking face. And so I have to be really conscious about trying to make sure that how I show up is what I'm committed to having people feel in response to my presence rather than, you know, my default, which is leave me alone. I'm focused on this and you're kind of in my way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that sounds, that sounds very, very familiar. <laughs> yeah. um, so tell me a little bit about yourself. I, I, I want to know more. I know you grew up in South Africa. That's from the accent straight away. Um, but I want to know you, how, how you grew up. Uh, I know it was in a big family. Well, yeah, could you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, I have what I would describe as one of the luckiest childhoods. I grew up, as you said, in South Africa, the youngest of eight kids. There's four boys and four girls. Uh, and being the youngest was a great opportunity to sort of grow up faster than normal. So I always felt like I was a decade older than my chronological age. <laughs> and also an opportunity to get into trouble because you're learning you know, bad habits and ways to get into mischief from your older brothers, at least in my case. Yeah. But at the same time, I grew up in apartheid South Africa, which, you know, from the accident of being born white in South Africa allowed me to have a very privileged, lucky, safe, wonderful childhood living 20 miles away from Soweto, where 6 million black people were living in horrific circumstances on the wrong side of apartheid. And so it's quite humbling as I grew up to realize just how very lucky I was being in that country. 
And I have to say, most of my childhood, I was completely unconscious of that experience. I just was, you know, a kid having fun, living a great life. Yeah. So that's something I reflect on a lot as an adult is how might we prevent that kind of thing happening in our own country, in our own lifetimes, so that there isn't this thing of some people are born lucky and some not. Yeah. And you, so you grew up in Johannesburg? I did. Yeah, I grew up in Johannesburg. Uh, and then I moved to Singapore for a while. My first business, I started with some partners who were living in Singapore and then had the opportunity to live in and work in quite a few countries around the world. I, I spent my last stint in South Africa in Cape Town, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Yeah. But along the way, I've spent time living in Sydney and Sao Paulo, Dallas, Chicago, some time in Europe. So I've had the... Uh, talk about luck, the opportunity to live, work, or run businesses on six continents so far. Wow, that's amazing. Are you, are you going for some goal for some uh, Guinness World Record, <laughs> trying to break something? <laughs> yeah, I think there are a lot of people. Start a business on every continent. Yeah, I've, I've got one to go. You know, they say about great sellers, they can sell ice to Eskimos. Yeah. <laughs> that would be the wrong continent. But uh, I am after all seven at some point. You can do it, man. I have faith in you. <laughs> so, I mean, you grew up, like you said, in, in apartheid South Africa. Um, and I also grew up in, in South Africa as well as a kid. And um, but for me, when I was there, I was so young, I, I actually didn't even know about it. You know, only when I grew up, I was like, I looked at the timeline. I was like, wait a minute. I was I was there, uh, you know, during the apartheid. Like I, had, I was six years old. I was from six, uh, six to ten. That was the time I was there. And really had had no idea, and um, so it didn't it really it didn't really affect me. But I was wondering, had, did you think it had any effect on you growing up in that time? You know, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I was completely unconscious of growing up in apartheid. My elder sister was quite conscious of it, and and an, you might say a demonstrator against, or at least a agitator against apartheid. I remember hearing Nelson Mandela's name only because there was a street that I would drive down with my dad. And I remember a piece of graffiti that said, hang Mandela. And then a couple of weeks later, someone had changed it to say, hang on Mandela. <laughs> and then the final version was, I guess the original people who, who spray painted that graffiti changed it to hang only Mandela. Jesus. And that's about the sum total of my recollection. I didn't know who he was, didn't know he was in jail, none of that until my early 20s. Yeah. And even then, I have to say, as apartheid was being dismantled, I was among the group of white South Africans who was really concerned about the impact that would have mm -hmm. and fearful of the prospect of a civil war. So I, I looked at it from an interesting angle and then got to see this amazing transformation that Nelson Mandela led. And I left the country not long after that. So you know, things have changed since then considerably, but it was a great time to be in South Africa if you were oblivious. I just wish I had been more conscious. Yeah, I think, you know, we're talking about 30 years ago, um, pre-social media, pre-Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, you know, 24-7 feeds running on your phone, you know, even phones. We didn't even have phones. So 
I think it was much easier back then to be oblivious to things where now you almost don't have an excuse. Now it's almost the opposite. You have too much content coming at you all the time with so much myths and disinformation that it's hard to know what's real and what's not anymore. And it seems like it's this, this, this propaganda machine on, on your phone just trying to like sway you in one direction or the other, depending on your uh, political affiliation and ideology. So it's a completely opposite time. And now there's almost no excuse. Now it's just, how do I decipher what's real? Yeah, that's true. I mean, in, in, at that time in South Africa, there was a state-run broadcasting corporation who you might say was pretty expert at the art of propaganda. Yeah. But that didn't even affect me because, as you say, as a kid, you know, you, we were outside the entire time. No cell phones, no devices, just doing what kids did in those days. And now having three young children myself, I just noticed the difference between how easy it is for them to become addicted to media because it's everywhere and devices are everywhere. And I think we're all paying a price for that. I agree. I definitely agree. So, I mean, you, like you said, you grew up in a, in a family of, of eight, which I can't even imagine that. Um, do you think it's an advantage or a disadvantage being the youngest of eight? Because, I mean, on the one hand, you're coddled. But on the other hand, I mean, tech, usually the, the, the youngest is a bit more coddled and sheltered, right? But on the other hand, you get the experience of all the, you know, all the, the brothers and sisters that came before you. So I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Look, I, I don't have an, an alternative experience, but I yeah. loved being the youngest. Um, my brothers and sisters tease me that my mom considered me to be the favorite. Mm -hmm. And I think she probably did only because I was last. And, you know, when there's eight kids, you can imagine the numbers two through six don't get as much attention as maybe they deserve because there's always the next one to look after. <laughs> so I, I had the two benefits, I think, of being youngest. The one is getting to learn from your siblings and see things that maybe other kids that age don't see. And then the toughening up that comes from being the youngest because we grew up in a family where... I wouldn't say we fought all the time, but we were a boisterous bunch. So yeah. learning to struggle and fight for yourself and fight to be heard and create your own little space, I think had a really great impact on my drive as an adult. So I, I would not trade it for the world. I'm, as a parent, you know, count on me to never have eight kids. We're done at three. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I can imagine. I, I had a... Uh... I had my cousins, there were three boys and my God, I mean, I remember the stuff they, they got up to. It was, it, it was like a small army of, of crazy people. So I can only imagine what eight, you know, can, can do. That's... And in those days, the idea of helicopter parents was just Didn't not exist. a thing, at least not in South Africa. We, we would come home from school and the rule was go outside, see you later. My mom had this old, bronze gong that you would bash at the time for dinner and we were maybe half a mile away we would share this thing and run home for dinner but other than that we were just constantly outside on our own and often getting into trouble <laughs> i mean how insane you know when you when you describe that it's it's almost like um I don't know, like a, like a movie you would see, you know, in the fifties here, like when everything was just much more innocent and, 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 
it's so completely different now. It's almost indescribable or, or, or it's not even something that I think kids now would be able to imagine, right? That, that freedom of just going outside, not being with your phone, getting creative, trying to find ways to play with, I don't know, uh, sticks and stones and making games up. And it just, it completely, it's completely foreign to them. They wouldn't even, I don't even think it would interest them now. Well, it's, it's interesting to see my little boy look for opportunities to go and explore on his own. And he's now seven. And as of this age, I have not let him out of my sight, you know, to go around the block on his own, on his bicycle. Really? Fact, last week was the first time I let him do that. And I was following from a distance, trying not to get him <laughs> see that I was doing it. And I just realized, man, this is so different from how I grew up and probably not the best thing for him either. You know, I'm worried about, of course, his safety in this crazy world we now live in. But there's a benefit to kids having that independence. And it's really tough to find that balance as a parent today, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine uh, I see it with, you know, friends and, and, and family that have kids. I personally don't have kids yet, but I can definitely see being worried, letting them buy them. You know, even when I hear about my niece and nephew doing things by themselves, I'm like, ah, you know, watch out. Yeah, it's it's uh, scary times, you know, and it's scary times and it's scary. I, I keep saying that I think the media has a huge, um, in huge respects, or I don't want to say responsible, but somewhat responsible for how we act now. All the fear that they instilled in us over time. And sometimes it's blown out of proportions on on so many different things. But it's just it's a it's a better safe than sorry type of situation, and um, we've all just we're all towing the line. Well, I think that's a great point because I'm not sure that kids weren't abducted or molested or got into horrible sorts of trouble when we were growing up, but you didn't hear about it every day, and it wasn't you know, on front page or on every TV station. And so I, I do think the media has created an exaggerated fear based on the salience of these things that can happen to our families. So it's also useful for me to think about like how real is this risk and am I being overly cautious? But I also feel like I could not live with myself if I exposed my kids to an opportunity for independence and things went wrong. Yeah. So the balance is really tricky to to find. And the same is true for us as adults. Like what where, where's the line between being safe in times like this with COVID and demonstrations and wanting to make a difference to the political landscape and racial inequality and at the same time be a responsible parent and adult. Yeah. And we'll definitely, you know, I definitely want to touch on that a little bit later. So how do you go from being a I know you had your own business in in South Africa? And then I guess there's there was a point where you just wanted to change or you wanted to maybe, you know, go just do something different. So how do you go from being a businessman in South Africa to a wellness businessman in Texas? Yeah. How did well, that transition happen? I had uh, the, the really good fortune of starting a business in South Africa with some great partners. And we built an amazing business over a decade. As I will tell anyone who asks, a lot of it was luck more than skill. We were in the right place at the right time. As apartheid was being dismantled, 
the healthcare landscape was being reconsidered. So much of the legislation was being redone and it was just a great time to experiment. And I qualified as a young person as an actuary, which is, you know, someone who studies mortality and morbidity and the science behind insurance. And, but my business was a health insurance consultancy and brokerage. And so we had a real advantage having that kind of thinking combined with an ability to sell. But it also became clear after about a decade that for me personally, succeeding in South Africa is a wonderful thing. And it's a great country to succeed in. But I always felt like winning in the C leagues versus coming to America and competing in the A league is a different yeah. thing. Yeah. And for all that I love and worry about in America, it is still one of the most competitive countries. So it was a personal challenge more than anything else. I didn't leave South Africa as many people have. I chose to come to America. And it was an interesting thing sitting in Cape Town at that time, thinking about where I wanted to go. I chose Texas for all the right reasons that turned out to be the wrong reasons in the end. <laughs> but I wanted to be in a state with a lot of people, with high health insurance costs, with poor average health, so I could come and bring the lessons I'd learned from South Africa and you know, help America. Yeah. A, a grandiose and naive desire. Because when I landed, I was very clear at that time in Texas, health and wellness was not a priority for employers. Uh, they certainly weren't that open to someone from South Africa trying to tell them how it should be done. So it was a struggle and a very wonderful struggle to go through. I learned a lot about America. And probably my biggest insight was I grew up on American culture in South Africa. Even though there was sanctions from around the world, the, the media that did get through and the TV shows that did come through were obviously mostly American. So I arrived in America very confident that I knew this place and this culture. And within a year, I was clear, man, you have no idea how Americans really are is not what you see on sitcoms. And they are they were for me at that time as foreign as maybe the French would be to an American. And now I'm, you know, I'm fully American. I've been here for going on 15 years. So I think like an American. But at that time there were some really interesting lessons for me to learn about the culture that I just didn't expect to have to learn. Yeah. I think America's biggest export is culture. Um out of all the other things that they export, uh, you know, everyone in the world, especially I think English speaking countries, they watch the movies and, and the TV shows and they, and they connect with the music. Right. And, and when you come to the U S you almost feel like, Hey, I'm American. Like I, I listen to the music and sometimes I like, I think I specifically, I learned uh, English from, you know, listening to rap and listening to, I don't know, watching movies and reciting the lines and, when you arrive here, I think in the beginning, you're like, oh, yeah, I fit in. Like, I understand. Like, I get the nuances and the references. But after being here for a few years, you're like, oh, okay. Like, you, it takes time to start seeing the difference, you know, and start seeing that, okay, I actually do see the differences that I, I maybe didn't see in the first six months to a year. That's at least on, on in my experience. I had exactly the same experience. And then, of course, and this sounds obvious to say, but I, I didn't appreciate the depth of this which is just how varied people are as you move from one state to the next, from one city to the next. 
it's a wonderfully rich country of diverse people and cultures and language even that differs from Texas to Massachusetts and New York and everywhere else in between. Yeah, the boot. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's like New York is completely different from from Texas. I would imagine if I if I would have landed in Texas, I might have had a bit more of a culture shock that I didn't have in New York. Yes, that's true. Uh, in some ways, uh, Dallas, which was the first city I really settled in, felt very familiar to me because it's topography or it's a landscape feels a little like Johannesburg. Everyone drives everywhere. It's not a walking city. Um, but the culture is quite different from what I was used to. And so that took a little getting used to. And then moving to Chicago, a very different experience again. I, I live downtown Chicago, so it's very walkable. The people are quite different. Uh, and I love this richness of America. It's, they say about London, you, know, you if you tire of London, you tire of life. I have the same view of America. There is just so much to learn, so many differences and nuances and places to visit. Like you could spend 10 lifetimes here and not get a full picture of this place. Easily, easily. So do you think it was an advantage uh, for you in a way, you know, coming to, to Dallas, having a fresh perspective, looking at things a bit differently, you know, not being a local, obviously there are the disadvantages that, that come with it, but are there some advantages as well? Maybe being more innovative, just again, like you get a bird's eye view of the situation that perhaps locals don't? Absolutely. In fact, the, the one thing I will tell my kids constantly is try to always be foreign. Because my view is you see things that people who grew up in a culture don't notice, and that gives you an amazing advantage. In most countries, I've found that having an accent that is different from the people that you work with every day is a wonderful advantage. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a flip side to all of these things. Like being foreign means people don't necessarily trust you as easily. And sometimes the positive is the expert from afar is trusted more than the person in your hometown. <laughs> I, I love being foreign wherever I go. It's not only a great opportunity for me to learn, but to help people who are in that culture see things from a new perspective. And I think that's a lot of the way that we can add value to each other is take your experience from all the places you've lived and worked and share it with people who don't quite have that same worldview. So yeah, my, I'm uh, very glad to be foreign. My friend, uh, my good friend, he's English. And um, we arrived in, in the US around the same time. And he gets away with murder. He has like a proper British accent and he gets away with murder. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> it's like it's like that famous uh, Trump quote where he says, like, I can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and I still get elected. It's kind of, you know, the metaphor holds, but he like he'll go into restaurants. You're like, oh, can I get that on a discount? Sure. No problem. Or. It just wherever he goes and he speaks with that posh accent, they just, you know, they, they fall for him. So yeah. I've seen that. I've seen it firsthand. I have to say the same thing is true where I grew up in South Africa. When Americans would come to South Africa, they just were wonderfully appreciated, at least at that time. I think America has done some damage to its, its reputation in foreign countries. Yeah. When I was growing up, American accents sounded very cool. We loved having Americans visit because they were more sophisticated, we thought, and had all this rich culture and this amazing country and money. And yeah, it was just great to have them there. So I think that's probably true in most countries. 
Now, I, I also know there is a lot of xenophobia and hatred and genocide that's happened to foreigners in different lands. So I also want to be responsible that my experience as a foreigner has been wonderfully positive, every now and then negative, and some people's is exactly the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, I found, you know, I, I, I love traveling and I try to travel a lot, uh, not so much in the past couple of years, unfortunately, and potentially, I guess, not in the near uh, future. But I would say 99% of the time I've had good, positive experiences. Um, you know, I have been in a few countries that are a little corrupt and you have brush ups with with law enforcement and stuff like that who try to shake you down. But I don't take that as a, you know, people tend to make, um, if you have some sort of a bad incident or you have some sort of traumatic event, they, a lot of times people make that part of their personality or part of, or, 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 um, you know, a generalized brushstroke over the whole country or over the whole people. And I just, I don't do that. It was, it's an incident. You can't take that and generalize it and make it, you know, something that's, that it's not about. So I just, I think for the most part, 99% of the time, I've had great experiences everywhere. And and I'll say one thing that I'm not sure we appreciate as much as, as Americans is just how law abiding things people are in this country i know today there's you know a lot of media around demonstrations and uh, trump sending in agents to try and deal with us and it just feels like america's almost on fire at the moment but having lived in south africa and brazil and countries like you just said with corruption and crime and a lot of violence i appreciate every day the fact that most americans the vast majority are law-abiding, wonderful people who run their lives in a way that mostly makes it easy for other people to be around them and to be part of society. It's not, yeah. That's not the experience for people across the globe. And I think that's why it's so important to, they, they kind of brush off sometimes some of the actions that particular individuals or groups are doing and just say, oh, it's fine because it's part of a, I don't know, a larger scheme to get whatever equality or whatever it is that they're looking for. But I think violence is never okay. And if you and, and it can devolve really quickly. And if you go to some of the countries that you mentioned, you can see like things can go, go off the rails very, very quickly. Uh, it doesn't take much. So it's really good that you do have law-abiding citizens and that the rule of law is number one. And we do respect that. And we try to stay civil and be nice to each other because the shit can go bad really quickly. And we've seen this in many, many countries like history. We don't want history to repeat itself here. Yeah. I love uh, Steven Pinker as an author and he's made the case in one of his books that if you look over the long arc of history, humanity has gotten better and better over time. And there's mm-hmm. fewer wars, fewer cases of genocide. But at the same time, the media we were talking about earlier makes it feel like we're in the worst period of the last 150 years. And are there things to worry about? Absolutely. But it's hard to complain about living in America in this day and age when so many other countries are really, really struggling. So this is actually a a great, great segue. And this is something I think you you can answer for me. There is this cognitive dissonance that, that that happens where 
right now, right? America, is it the best country? No. Uh, is it one of the best countries? Uh, probably. Has it made so much progress over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Absolutely. But people still want to wallow and, and find problems and say it's the worst. And it's, I don't want to go into the whole diatribe, but there's this thing that humans do, right? Like, I think you, there's a story that you said about smoking. Like, I can smoke, but then I'm completely healthy. Like, I don't see myself as a problem and the smoking as a problem. But if you look at other people like, oh, I can't believe they eat all that junk food. It's like, there's just no mirror that you put for yourself. And I see this with masks. I'll see people, I'll see people complaining about other people not wearing masks while not wearing masks. Yeah. So we just, we want to find the bad all the time, but, and we know what the, like, eventually we all want to be happy, healthy, and financially secure. But our habits and the way we act suggest otherwise. Can you maybe shed some light as to why we do this? Yeah, I think it's because of the difference between how our brain deals with short-term pleasure versus long-term gain. And so when we're tempted by fast food or alcohol or tobacco or spending money, it's really difficult to resist in the moment, even though we know a year from now we would be healthier and happier and more financially secure if we were to avoid those things or limit those things. And humans hyperbolically discount the future, meaning like if I said to you, would you prefer 10 bucks today or 100 bucks a year from now? Any rational person would take the 100 bucks a year from now. It just turns out we're not rational. We want the immediate and I think that is getting worse and worse, that we have become a society where instant gratification is expected. It's enabled through technology. And that makes it really hard to be disciplined about habits that will have a longer term payoff versus poor choices that feel good now, but just don't serve us as, as humans or as a society. Yeah, so I think I mean, the, the problem to solve for us is really to think about how might we design our schools and employers and public institutions to make these healthy habits that create amazing societies the easy default rather than the difficult choice? So we need complete reform in all those different areas? Well, it's, e it's easy to say that, but, <laughs> but every one of our institutions has been designed with some purpose. I'm just not sure that when we were designing schools or workplaces, we were thinking about the best attributes for human beings that we would like to create versus producing a profit or educating people, both of which are wonderful things to do, but sometimes they've come at the cost of or at the price of human health, happiness, and security. Yeah, so I mean, might we redesign companies from the ground up with a the reason for having them is to have every employee be better off a year from now than they are today and still make a profit. You know, our view is a company guided by serving its employees is more likely to satisfy customers, grow quickly and deliver to shareholders than one that uses up its employees in the production of profits. Yeah. Now there is a, I believe a growing number of people and there's more of a consensus uh, that of people that are realizing that work 
working out, exercising, fitness is a personal investment that people should should put stock in. And I think companies are probably starting to realize it, maybe not as much as as they should. But in your professional opinion, how high would you would you rate staying fit and active for overall growth, both personally and for companies to invest in their employees? I'm of the view that personally and professionally, investing in your self-care is the foundation on which all performance is built. So I don't think of it as a luxury. I think of it as a gift you give to other people. Said differently, okay. A lot of us say, I, I want to work out and eat healthily because I want to lose a couple of pounds or be in good shape. And it's all about what's in it for me. Yeah. And as a result, we tend not to get it done because one of the things that I noticed about Americans, which I will generalize to human beings, is actually most people are extraordinarily generous in the service of other people. So we spend our lives trying to make our spouses and our kids and our employers and our friends happy and serve people and so many people have such a great service ethic mm-hmm. and if that's your mindset investing in yourself sometimes feels like robbing those people of your time and attention and i think that's something we need to flip to think about it as i look after myself in the service of being a better dad parent employee uh, uh, citizen so it should be your first priority, not the thing you get to if you manage to find the time after helping everybody else. Yeah, you almost need to carve out. It's just like, you know, you carve out time in the day to get lunch. You carve out a time in the day to, I don't know, whatever it is, right? Go to the bathroom, to do your work, uh, whatever it is that your daily routine is you should add a half hour or an hour or an hour and a half, whatever your needs are and however much time you have during the day to find a workout that works for you. Like you don't always have to do the same thing. People like different things, but you should do something. And, you know, I, I, I also, I, I, I wasn't of this mindset. I, you know, I've only come to, to this mindset maybe in the last three or four years or so, but I, I, I see a difference when I invest this time in myself and I do work out consistently i see all the improvements just from mental to physical to more output just everything increases for the better yeah and that's as a personal experience that's validating and you know a decade ago we set up a behavioral research lab to study the economic value of certain habits in particular health habits Mm -hmm. and the evidence is just compelling and overwhelming these basic habits of self-care have you show up more energized with more stamina you make better and faster decisions you have fewer health failures there's less risk of you being sick or off work or at work but unproductive so everyone benefits and i think that it's not obvious to employers how critically important it is if if they took too hard all of that research I think employers would take on carving out that time and being an insist that for an hour a day, we need you to look after yourself on company time paid for. Why? Because we'll get a four to one return or a five to one return in the same day because you took that time to invest in yourself. 
So it's, well, it's not my job, but if I were president for a day, you know, <laughs> I, I would love to see schools bring back PE much more rigorous, rigorously. I would love to see companies experiment with just an investment in self-care that's part of your job, not apart from your job. Yeah. And America is a very sporty country, right? Like they love, you know, football and basketball and, and pretty much all sports, wrestling. Like they invest a lot of money, time, like look at the, some of the best athletes in the world in every category of sport. They're usually from the U.S. But on the flip side, it's also one of the unhealthiest nations. It's such a juxtaposition where you have some of the best humans that that athletics have ever seen living in the same country with some of the unhealthiest and most obese people you have ever seen yeah and i think that comes back to what you were saying earlier about you know the, the claims that america is the best country on the planet i think america can lay claim and particularly in the last part of the last century to having been leaders in and produced some of the most amazing things in the world but there is There's this duality here. So we do have some of the best athletes on the planet and extraordinary health problems from sedentary lifestyles. We have some of the smartest inventors and we have a lot of challenges around basic education for underprivileged people. So it's my personal concern raising kids in this country is the widening gap between the extraordinary performers and the bulk of everyone else who struggles, doesn't have the same access or support that some of the more egalitarian countries seem to get right. Yeah. Let's, you know, I want to talk a little bit about growth. I watched a, you know, I did a little bit of research before we talked and uh, I watched a talk that you gave in, I believe, 2011. And you look, by the way, it, it's a completely different person. You look like two different people. And, and then I saw the, the, the Google one that you gave, uh, I think it was called how, how to be magnetic. It was 2019. And I mean, it's, it's two different people, right? The, the growth and development and improvement. And, and like you say, like the magnetism that developed over time was, I mean, you could really, really see it. It, it was profound. Right. And I think a lot of people don't allow themselves to grow. There is this notion that we have to be the best right now. Um, you know, how important is, do, do you think it is to allow people, to allow ourselves to, to grow and not get it perfect right away? And, and that's okay as well. Well, it's my favorite subject. Thank you for asking. <laughs> and that's very kind of you to say. A friend of mine sent me a video that I, I was in from 25 years ago training a team. Wow. And I watched it with extraordinary embarrassment <laughs> as we tend to not only you know hearing your own voice is bad enough but yeah seeing your younger self on video and it just reminded me what a, what a wonderful thing it is to have the opportunity to grow like i'm obsessed with growth and the mechanics of getting good at getting great at anything and the wonderful power that deliberate practice with feedback from great coaches gives you So I, I have a life view that life is an opportunity for growth. There are many other wonderful things you can get out of life. Yeah. But learning, growing, developing your skills is very satisfying for me and helping others do the same thing. And it, it, it brings up an interesting question about the very nature of identity. 
You know, we have all these personality tests that classify you as one thing or another. And I've come to believe that who you are as a human being is an invention over time. And you can radically change who you are, your very personality, by choosing, practicing, and becoming a master of different skills and habits. Because if you think about it, when you meet someone on the street, you judge them very quickly, and then you get to know them a little bit better. And at some point, you could say, you know, I've met Roy, we've had a relationship for a while, and now my view is your personality is X, you have these traits A, B, and C. And what I'm really pointing to is your behaviors and the consistency of those behaviors over time. Or said differently, who you are for me is nothing more or less than the sum of your habits. And that, I think, it both explains why personality feels so constant, because habits are really sticky and it's hard to change them. Yeah. But it's also an empowering view. If you want to become different in some way, improved, however you, des you define that, you can do that by getting good at choosing the habits that create that kind of person. And we were talking about that right at the beginning. Like a, a habit I'm constantly at work on is being aware of and then choosing kindness over my default, which is crumpiness. <laughs> you know, it's so crazy. You said we invent ourselves and I never thought that, I, you know, you always hear, oh, she reinvented herself or he reinvented himself. And it's, it's just kind of a saying, but I never really thought about that aspect of it. And when you said right now, like you actually invent who you are, that kind of struck a chord. I was like, that, that is true. You really, you make decisions and you choose who you're going to be. And that's, yeah, you kind of invent yourself. You're an invention of your own mind and you could be a good one or you could be a bad one. And yeah, I think a lot of times we obviously make a lot of, most of our, our, our choices are completely unconscious and, and we just, I don't know, we're just going through the motions and, and life comes at you. And I, you know, how, I guess my question is, what habits would you say we need to perform on a daily basis to become a better overall human, a better, maybe a more creative person? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in our business at Habits at Work, we've thought about this question a lot. And we have a list of 12 habits that we think make you magnetic, highly effective, and efficient at whatever you do in life, whether it's at work or in life, in life with your family. And the foundational one, perhaps the most important one, is the habit of asking for and putting into use feedback from coaches in your life. We describe it as the habit of getting good at getting great at anything. So if you want to become an amazing chess player, well, there's two ways to go about it. One is play a bunch of chess. The other is first figure out how to get good at anything and then apply it to the habit of playing chess. So I like to start there because it, it enables me to get good at something faster than I otherwise would have. And then there are some very basic human skills that we would say are part of what it looks like to be good at having conversations that create the future with other people. And those conversations, if you think about like a, an interview you had 20 years ago for a job, that was a conversation with someone, the end of which was the employer saying, Roy, do you want this job? And you said, yes. 
And that conversation completely changed the trajectory of your life. Yeah. I don't think we notice that our conversations create our future. They're not just about something. And if that's true and you want to be someone who can create a different future for yourself, for your company, for humanity, what are the habits that make you good inside conversations? And there are things like posing the right questions and listening empathically to your conversation partner, telling stories to inspire people, uh, presenting yourself in a way that has you show up as passionate and trustworthy and credible. And so there are these habits that we think just make you easy to talk to, fun to be around, and inspiring in the way that you can guide people to take new actions in their life that helps them make progress in their lives. So what's the difference between listening to someone and hearing someone? <laughs> Hearing is what you do with your ears. Okay. Listening is what you do with your entire body and in particular your eyes. Because if you think about it, when, and I'm sure this has happened to you because it happens to me all the time, you're speaking to a partner or a spouse or a friend and you're on your cell phone and they're talking to you and they suddenly say, Andrew, you're not listening to me. And my response is usually, yes, I am. And I try and quote back to them verbatim what I said, what they said. And it just makes them more mad. <laughs> and the reason is because I was hearing what they were saying, but I wasn't paying attention to them. If you look up the word listen in the dictionary, it, it says to pay attention to rather than to hear. Yeah. So for me, listening empathically is firstly paying complete attention to someone and then allowing yourself to feel what they feel so that they open up and allow themselves to share with you what really matters to them. Because that, that's where human beings connect is where you and I share an interest or a concern or we both think this topic matters to us. And then we feel like we're connected in some sense. We're, we're part of the same tribe or we're one of the same types of people. Yeah. You know, I've, in the past few months, um, facial expressions are obviously extremely important when you have a conversation. There's small nuances that you pick up, uh, small facial expressions that tell you if that person is interested or not. And with masks, it is becoming extremely difficult um, you know, even like just going into a store and, and usually you would get a smile and you would smile back and, and those small things are kind of disappearing. And I was in Japan earlier this year before COVID happened. And I, after I remember, and everyone had masks on, literally everyone, 90% of the population. And, and perhaps that's why they did so well with COVID. But um, after leaving Japan, I was like, wow, you know that, that was like, forget the problem that I had with language, but just the fact that I couldn't read people's facial expressions made it so much harder for me to, to communicate with them. And now I'm, you know, I'm, you're dealing with this here. And I just, I just wonder if that's something you, do you think we'll be able to, to get past that at some point? Or are we just, you know, how do we deal with it? Uh, well, I share your view that it's creating barriers between people that weren't there before. And one of the, the most fun and challenging things I've done in my life is going to countries where I can't speak the language and then going and having a conversation with someone anyway. Yeah. Asking for directions in Japan where you can't speak a word of the language, so certainly I can't, but still being effective in communicating shows me that communication is only 
one small part of what you say, and it's so much about how you say it, your body language, what you do with your hands, and that's a fun exercise to remind you of that. So I think the, the onus is on us as mask wearers and as people who pay attention to others wearing masks to make an over and above effort to speak with our eyes, to reinforce things with our hands, and maybe to put more visual language into our spoken words so that some of what's missed with these barriers gets around the barrier in some other way. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's a new world right now. We're just we're all we're all kind of adjusting. Um, you know, when I when I watch your uh, Google talk, more than anything, I was just very um, interested as to how you can speak for a whole hour, right? I mean, it didn't seem like you were reading from from anywhere, and you remembered everything, and you were very calm and, and collected and um, magnetic, which I want to touch on in, in, in a minute, but how do you, like for me, all right, for me, my number one fear is public speaking. If you told me go swim with sharks or do, or, or public speaking, I'm putting on a bathing suit, right? Like that's just <laughs> what's going to happen. I just cannot do public speaking. And it's something I, I know I need to work on because it's just something I have to work on. It's something I have to improve. Like I, I have, I don't fear much in this world. And it, it annoys me that this thing is, is holding me back. And yeah, I guess one question is, how would I develop that skill? And that other question is, how do you become so proficient? And how do you hold a talk so well? Well, firstly, thank you for the compliment. That's very kind of you to say. The, the bad news is I am as fearful of speaking in front of a crowd as perhaps you are. I'm not sure I'd choose the sharks over professional speaking or public any speaking. Any day, any day. But I will say I'm nervous before I get up there. I sweat. I have this nauseated feeling in my stomach, um, tense, and that hasn't gone away over a couple of decades of doing this. What I've now started to realize, though, and I tell myself this is these sensations are my body preparing me to perform rather than being an indication that I'm about to fail? It helps a little. It doesn't quite get the job done. I think the, the biggest thing I've learned is preparation is a substitute for courage. And so for that talk, I spent six months practicing it over and over again with a bunch of coaches and they were wonderful and warm, but also critical and insightful. I didn't feel like I was at the top of my preparation there because when I watch it, I still see so many flaws and errors. Yeah, But it, it is a function of the number of hours of practice and the quality of the coaches that I have. I have some amazing coaches in my life who, without their contribution, my speaking would be one-tenth of the quality it is today. So it's, it's also very humbling to remember this is a skill that I acquired standing on the shoulders of just amazing people who are masters at the art of storytelling and professional speaking. I think it was Mike Tyson that said hard work beats talent. And um, I think that's, that's very true. Yeah, I think that's, that's true too. I'm of the view that any human being with enough effort and the right kind of coaching 
can get into the top 1% level of performance in any domain. You may not be able to become the best golfer or gymnast or racing car driver in the world, but you can get into the top 1% just through determination and coaching. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. I do agree. I do agree that habits create, um, through your habits, you can create a better self. I just don't know. In, you know, for me, my, I think my biggest problem is I have too many interests. Um, there's a lot of things that I'm interested in and a lot of people I'm interested in. And I always, I think throughout my life, my biggest issue was pinpointing one thing because especially like my brain is so ADD, like I'm so, I'm like, I, I, I'm into climbing and then I love martial arts. And I, I, it's not that I abandon the other one. It's just that I don't focus all my energy. And then I end up doing five or six or seven or eight different things at a time. And then I neglect one and then I put more effort into the other. And so it goes, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's especially in this day and age. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just find it harder and harder. And I guess I, I'm, I'm sure that's me. Like I, love people and i've had people on this podcast that have dedicated their life to one craft and they have done some unbelievable things right like just absolutely unbelievable and they've broken records and i think those are the type of people that we you know and that's why i have them on the podcast because i'm impressed by them and they're amazing people and you know we're kind of attracted to people who perform at at the highest level right right that's yeah that's a, that's one of the features that makes people magnetic is they just stand out from the crowd. You know, it, it reminds me of a story. I think it's true, but it's certainly a, a good moral, whether or not it's true, about Warren Buffett having a conversation with a, his pilot. And he asks him to list the top 20 things he wants to get done in life. And he dutifully writes them down and then ranks them most important to least important. And Warren says, take items six through 20, put them on a separate list and put the heading above things I will not touch at all such that you can go and focus on your top five things. And I'm like you, I want to get good at 10 or 15 things. And if there's one lesson we've learned from our behavioral research, it is human beings cannot easily change more than one habit at a time. So you're much better off picking one thing, focus on it for a while. If you're like, you sound like, and I certainly am, you get bored after a while, well, then you can change gears and focus on something else. But trying to get good at seven things at the same time, I've never succeeded that way. And I think most humans don't. No, it's impossible. It's kind of like when you're an entrepreneur and you're starting a startup, you can't start five startups. You know, like it takes everything in, in, in your life and in your will to start the one. And if you're lucky, you'll be able to make something out of it. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. So what does it mean to be magnetic? If you could summarize it in uh, not in a sentence, but in, you know, summarize it. What does yeah. it mean to be magnetic? Well, as, as we were discussing earlier with the distinction between personality and behaviors, I've come to view magnetism as something that people have because of the way they behave rather than who they are as a set of traits. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it is a learnable skill rather than, you know, some people are just magically born charismatic and magnetic and some of us aren't, and that's your fate for life. And I've certainly seen people grow their magnetism over time. And there are a couple of behaviors that I think other people find very attractive. 
one of which you've already mentioned is just being extraordinary at something. I mean, just look at how we flock to the best actors, the best sports people, the best musicians, the best in any domain. Yeah. We love people who perform at the highest level. I've also found that magnetic people are ones who unlock greatness in other people. And they often do that not by guiding them or advising them, but by asking them the right kinds of questions so that people invent new pathways for performance that they hadn't seen before that they own because they came up with them in response to great questions. And the third one is, is what we were talking about earlier is this idea of empathic listening. Now, if you think about the best listeners in your life, they are people who we love, respect, and admire. And it's because they give us the opportunity to talk about what we love the most, ourselves. So <laughs> empathic listening is, is an enormous gift. And I find I'm drawn to people who are interested in me. There's this old saying, to be interested, to be interesting, be interested. And asking questions and listening empathically is an act of being interested. And the counterintuitive result is people will find you interesting, magnetic in return. So those are my, my top three behaviors. I think telling great stories and being able to present yourself with poise and passion and confidence is part of it. But those are, I would say, the second tier of what makes a magnetic human being. You know, I have a, a childhood friend and he's not a great uh, talker. He doesn't like talk much. He's not a great storyteller. He's not a super magnetic type of charisma, charismatic personality, but he is by far one of the best listeners that you'll ever meet. And I've literally never heard anybody say anything bad about this guy. Like everyone loves him because they can open up to him very quickly because he like genuinely listens to what you have to say. And he's one of the nicest guys. And yeah, I think that's, that's, that's um underrated skill uh, listening and actually, like you said, like not hearing, but, but actually listening to someone. Um, yeah. I think it's a very underrated skill. Yeah. I've, I've noticed a lot of the people who I consider to be very magnetic are somewhat understated relatively quiet we have this idea that magnetism and charisma are these big bold personalities who lead from the front and they're confident beyond words it's not been my experience there's a lot of people who at first glance look pretty quiet but you watch them and just see that they become the center of gravity for amazing groups of people that get a lot of things done so in my own life, it's a practice that I look to, to improve on is speaking less, listening more, uh, really focusing on the things I want to be good at, in particular serving other people in the domains of sales and customer success, and counting on the fact that the loudest person is not the most magnetic. No. Roosevelt said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's the distinction for me between someone who's impressive versus someone who's inspiring and magnetic. Who would you say is the most, or at least someone that pops to your head, the most charismatic and magnetic person you know? 
I have a long list, but uh, the first person who came to mind is one of my speaking coaches, Mickey Williams. She's uh, just a force of nature, wonderfully outrageous in her way of dressing and her behavior, but also a heart of gold and a fantastic coach. And people just flock to her. I mean, she has friends and supporters all over the world. I find her very inspiring. And because she's so generous with her now many decades of experience in the art of professional speaking. Another is my friend and colleague, Craig Wartman at the Kellogg Sales Institute, just always generous and warm and open and always giving credit to other people. And that's just so admirable for me to watch someone who is 100% generous all the time. That's amazing. That really is amazing. Um, your book is called The 11th Habit. Can you explain what the 11th habit is? Yes, it's, it's one of the 12, but we named <laughs> that one in particular because we think that self-care, which is our 11th habit, made up of habits of health, happiness, and security, yep. are things that people attend to usually only when their health or happiness or financial security fails and they get around to it too late you know, the proverbial 11th hour. So we named it the 11th habit, just to remind people, it probably should be number one, we could have called the book the first habit. But right now, it's at the bottom of the list for people. And the book is making the case for if you are an employer, and you prioritize your employees health, happiness and security, amazing, wonderful things flow from that that will drive your business success. So don't attend to it when it's too late attend to it as your first priority. Well, are we seeing a little bit of a shift now, now that everyone's working from home and potentially could be working from home for the foreseeable future? And maybe this is also the new norm. Like we just, we have no idea what's going to happen. Do, you know, on the one hand, you work from home, which is, is nice. And on the other hand, we're, I think we're working longer hours now because from the moment you wake up to, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 at night, you could be working because you're home. So it's everyone feels very comfortable and reaching out to you. Yeah. Um, but could that cut into some of the time that we before, you know, we left office and then we'd go work out? Do you see some changes in that happening? Yes, I think it's made it a lot harder for people to balance their lives. Okay. I've always had this view that work-life balance is a myth at best. And at worst, it's just really insidious, this idea, because work based mainly on technology has found a way to reach into our homes. You know, emails at 11 o'clock at night, I pick up my phone the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. So work has made no apology for and has been really effective at invading our home life. And as we're working from home now, Employers are understandably worried, like, are my teams being productive? Are they at work? So there's even this culture in some companies of now surveilling their employees at home to make sure they're working. And so I think more than ever, work has invaded our homes and the line has just completely blurred. And notice that it's not appropriate for most employers to have people bring their home life into work. Yeah. That's sort of weird and awkward. So I worry for people. On the other hand, I think. A lot of us have had time to reconnect with family and with kids. On balance, I think the first four months of lockdown has been very challenging for people. 
and that many of the habits that they may have had have gone out the window. I'm hoping we'll, people will adjust and figure out ways to make this work. But while we're working, living, raising kids, homeschooling all at the same time, and having to support businesses that are in many cases in trouble, it's an enormous task for most people. And I'm seeing quite a lot of, you might say, COVID burnout. Yeah, That was certainly a phenomenon before this, but it's exacerbated the problem. So I like to at least try to end the podcast on a positive note. What is, you know, now when the majority of people are at home and gyms are closed and offices are closed and maybe you're not seeing friends and family as much, what's a one habit that people can start implementing into their daily routines um, that you think will maybe improve or incrementally improve their lives? Wow, there's a long list. So if I had to pick one, it would be if you live in a place where you can get outside safely with a mask on and social distancing, do so for five to 10 minutes every hour on the hour, maybe with someone who you're living with and you can just connect. Because everything we know about people's health and mental health in particular says having good personal relationships is one of the most important things you can do. So combine that with a little exercise, a little bit of fresh air outside and a break from work. I'm confident that would make most people's days feel a lot different from the Zoom fatigue that so many of us have right now. Yeah, Zoom fatigue is real. It, it's happening everywhere. <laughs> it is. Um, all right, man, I really appreciate the time. Uh, where can people find you on, on social media and on uh, the websites? Uh, where are you on, on the internet? Uh, in a few places. The easiest place is at our website, company website, habitsatwork.com, H-A-B-I-T-S-A-T-W-O-R-K.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Uh, that's my preferred medium because it's it's a business network that I love. And if they want to reach out to me on an email, that's appropriate too. I'm at andrew at habitsatwork.com. And very open to people reaching out and wanting to talk about all of the wonderful things we've talked about today and the business that we run. I, which is something I want to say just as a side note. That's something I really appreciate. There are many uh, people in, in, in different businesses and in different industries that are extremely difficult to get a hold of and they don't reply to emails. And you and, and people from your company have been so gracious and you, uh, you, know, you answer emails right away and you're always nice and professional. And uh, that's something I think a lot of people uh, can learn from. Thank you. That's great of you to say. And, and may I end by saying this is one of the most interesting, warm conversations I've had. You are an extraordinarily gracious and interesting person with whom to speak. So you've made my oh, day. Thank you. Thank you, man. That really made my day. I really appreciate that. I, uh, <laughs> I had a great time as well. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, perhaps in the future, you know, we can do a follow up. Uh, I'd love to do that. So yeah, man, I had, I had a blast. I really appreciate you taking the time out of the day and doing this. Thank of you so course. much, man. Have a wonderful day. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.